Welcome to the Next Visions and House of Beautiful Business podcast. This is Christian. I'm head of company building at Porsche Digital. I'm Tim. I'm the co-founder and co-curator of the House of Beautiful Business. We have this fantastic podcast to bring together two thought leaders. So, Tim, can you explain a little bit the setup? So we are at the House of Beautiful Business, which is the annual gathering of the House of Beautiful Business think tank and community. Um, once a year in Lisbon, we gather 700 members of our community from very different backgrounds and inspire them to have a conversation about visions for the future of technology, business, and society. And two of whom we basically uh, paired and um, asked them to be in a room they had not met before. Mm -hmm. uh, so imagine you're at the House of Beautiful Business and then you enter a room and you meet this different person, this fellow resident, as we call them. And you may have read their name and their bio, but there really has not been any preparation. So it's really mm -hmm. a conversation basically from scratch. In fact, one important detail, there's not even a moderator. So it's really just okay. like two humans meeting each other and then discovering each other, as you, dear listeners, should now also discover, I guess, more about these two people. So what we're looking for are basically next visions. So different perspectives of two beautiful minds. So who are these beautiful minds, Tim? So we'll have Maria Kolitsida, who uh -huh. is a co-founder and CEO of winningminds.ai. It's a company that's using AI to facilitate a more effective collaboration at the workplace. She calls herself a neurodata matchmaker. Mm -hmm. And she's in conversation with Sophie Kleber. Sophie Kleber is the head of Spaces UX at Google. So she's really tasked with examining how the design of spaces affects our behavior and how we can design spaces, workplaces in particular, that are emotionally responsive. So they'll have a conversation about the future of emotions And also, if there is such thing as emotionally intelligent, artificial intelligence. So, um, quite a fascinating conversation. Neurodata matchmaking sounds super interesting. So, let's listen into it. Hi. Hello. Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll start with me. Okay. So, I'm Maria Colicida, a CEO and founder of Winning Minds AI, an AI company on behavior analytics and optimizing performance. We're based in London and in Montreal, Canada. Awesome. I'm Sophie Kleber. I'm a user experience designer based in New York. I currently work at Google. And in my spare time, I uh, think a lot about emotional intelligence in machines, what that means for us as humans when we are emotionally accessible and decodable, or what could go wrong and what we need to do to get it right. And... Right now we're talking here at the House of Beautiful Business exactly. in Lisbon, beautiful Lisbon. Yes, yes, and a great event. So, should we talk about emotions? Let's. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. Um, do you feel that machines can really pick up the emotions or can really start getting clues of the emotions and then how to respond? I think we are astonishingly much further along than common population tends to believe. The question is a hard question because we first have to ask, do we understand our emotions and can we decode emotions? And if we look at any kind of model trying to decode emotions, they are A, very old, the Pitchark wheel of emotions, and B, very limited and subjective, sociocultural context and, and all of that put together. So the first joke always in emotional studies is, Before you have machines that are emotionally intelligent, you have to have humans that are emotionally intelligent. However, when you do look at some of the 
studies and some of the companies that are in the market, um, the idea, you know, Affectiva works with facial recognition, Beyond Verbal works with voice recognition. Um, it is striking to see how much they can read out of a normal conversation. And it is scary because it is invasive. It feels like mind reading because all of a sudden a layer is exposed, which oftentimes we go at great lengths to conceal. So yes, I think to a certain degree we are much further along than than we think. Okay. Uh, it is true that the theories and behavioral analytics are kind of old and the major flaws are that they are context agnostic and very generic. And even the data sets are very, very old. But I think machines and AI still remain a tool. It's what we feed them and what we want to use them for. So um, yes, they give the perception of being invasive, but emotions have also an intention that usually machines cannot pick up because they don't know the story of the whole, you know, of the whole conversation and so on. So are they truly invasive? Yes, they can understand I'm angry, but is it something obvious to everybody? For example, can they understand though they know the root cause of that and can they follow my story? That's a, I think that's, that's something very powerful that the machines could really pick up in the future. Yes, the AI models are progressing in that model, but um, I wouldn't find them yet invasive, to be honest. Yes. Well, I think what I find so interesting about your work is that um, it, the context is a is a massive piece and a massive part because yes. uh, you can pick up on an emotion, but you might not have any idea why that emotion is and where that comes from. And if you work primarily as a machine only, you you know tend to be self centered in that respect. What I find very interesting about your work is that it goes about behaviors and it goes about behaviors in groups as yep. well. So to pair or use the emotional read as one input into, let's call it conflict resolution in the largest sense, I'd be very keen to see how you actually crack that nut yep. between the the behaviors, the emotions, and then how does that work? Is there a readout? Is there a coaching? Is there? Yes. Well, the story starts that we don't live in a silo, right? So we interact with people. So, And the whole point is how we can capture the whole ecosystem the whole context when we talk. And group agency is the theory that we use to try to understand. That's um, how we do it. We we don't follow the personality traits model. We don't follow anything that has to do with putting boxes and being very generic. We try to focus on the moment and therefore the whole AI model is around uh, picking every single millisecond of the conversation and taking into account the trigger and the stimuli, like, you know, the cause and effect pretty much of the discussion. And uh, we don't focus on the individual anymore. So the, the individual is part of the context of an ecosystem and what are the triggers around this person and what are the responses. So this is how we try to do it. In terms of analysis, of course, you start for the very basic things from the physics of the sounds, for example, okay, what it means, timber, energy, and so on, even more the, the physical aspect of the sound, and then you go up to levels and levels. So you go to ASR, automatic speech recognition, then you go to understanding the language, then you go understanding the fusion, how the audio and the text together give a different message. Because you can have audio in isolation and you can have like, um, you cannot pick up things like passive aggressive, right? I can say something in a very nice way, like uh, if you only see the text, but if you hear my voice, then it's a different story. And then you you link that to the context, what was this about, in a time-series manner. 
So you follow the conversation, you follow the behaviors, you follow actually the demonstrated attitudes, and you link that to the context and the overall behavior. This is how we try to do it. And then is there a, a readout or is there a... How does it... Yes, it, how it, does gives, it, it gives... Um, It flags moments during the conversation or during the team communication, whatever you want you to have the application. And uh, it will give things like, it will uh, link certain attitudes or behaviors that we found with certain events that we find that they change the course. There are like triggers to change the course of the uh, communication. And then at the end, it will give you an overall outcome like, you know, this is a story and this is, for example, depends on the application. Right. If you're trying to do something about suicide prevention, for example, at the end, the KPI will be how do I prevent, you know, this action? And as a therapist, what should I do? Where do I miss the point where I should pay more attention? So then we will gather these events and different behaviors around that events to say to the therapist, look, this is what we see, you should pay attention, or this is what has been done extremely good and this is how the behavior changes. If you do that in business... It's a different story. You try to link it with business goals and the whole story of a project. So again, you, it depends on the, on the application, I would say. Yes. So here's my theory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. In this. Yeah. Because last year I developed a framework to think about what we need to do in order to get this right. And the framework has two axes. One is the permission that you have from the user to actually read or even alter their emotions, right? What's the user's current emotional state, do they want that changed, amplified, or left completely alone, and what are they trying to do when they interact with you as a business, right? And that brings us to the other side, which is the business's permission to play in the space. So what is your purpose as a business? Are you in a space that is a well-being space in which the, you know, addition of emotion and emotional understanding is beneficial for the user, behavior modification, conflict resolution, like you mentioned, or are you trying to sell me a car, in which case I will not give you permission to learn my emotions and to understand and potentially manipulate them in order for me, there's a conflict of interest, inherent conflict of interest. So when you look at these things, what I think about a lot is, is what are the different ways to react then, right? If you have no permission to play and the user has no interest in their emotion being changed, then you can't play, don't bother. If there is some wish for the user's emotions to be changed and some wish or some permission from the company to play in that space, you can start with learning, right? You use the emotion as intake, but you still react like a machine so you don't utilize these in any kind of output. Then we go further on the gradient and we go into the space of, that seems where you're currently playing a lot as well, is this idea to say, We read and analyze the emotions. They come into the system as part of a data set and we do read that back. So we merely expose that to you and show you what has happened on an emotional level as a user that's beneficial for me because I learned something mm -hmm. about me, but I still retain full agency over my emotions. So if we then go all the way to the other end of the spectrum and I play your, your idea a little bit further... If the user really wants to have their emotions altered and you as a company have a high permission to play, you could actually start acting to manipulate and change the people's emotions. So I wonder, in your case of conflict resolution, what are things that can actually happen in the moment 
to change the emotionality and the conversation in the room. How dangerous is that? Where is that good? You know, when I think about interfaces, I think about them not just as computer screens, but I think about them as intuitive, ubiquitous interfaces. And when I play your example, for example, what would happen if I would change the lighting in the room at that moment of time? Because we know lighting can change moods yes. and can change things mm-hmm. like that. And these are very subtle things that can actually yep. start influencing where these conversations go. True. Good points to the defense of the machines, unless you don't know the whole story, it's really difficult for the machine to figure out if it's a light. So somehow we need to feed the machines this information, like, oh, you know, you need an observer and you need to put so many aspects to any machines to understand, like, is that the scenario? What if I change the, you know, the light dim or whatever? So I think, as you mentioned, interface, interaction, Machines can give you lots of information right now that can be powerful. I think that understanding what is happening is the very first sense of improving something, right? And changing. So 99% of your time you spend it on finding the problem and 1% you find, okay, what should I do? Is it about the lights? Against a decision made by a human being. So yes and no now if the machines will really reach the point that will understand have sensors in every single aspect of the context could go there make decisions again they will not know the story so maybe the decisions if you put them in a line in an order will be random will not make sense so you pretty much you know reduce the lights but then increase the music or something crazy that doesn't make sense you know because you don't have this sense of the reality or you keep always the human, you know, human in the loop, which is fantastic because now they know exactly what they should be doing much faster. Right. Yeah, I think. It's this, I mean, I feel it's exactly this kind of cusp that we yes. are at right now, right? We're generally, obviously, as humans, not comfortable yet with having our emotions understood and decoded. And I think that's why it's important that we talk about this now because the market is so much further along than people generally believe. I think it's supposed to increase 40-fold year over year for the next five years, getting into the billions in like 2025. And it is a very powerful tool, not only for, you know, the good sides, but also for manipulation and things like that. So where do you see that it could go wrong? Well, I think it has to do with with the purpose of the usage. We've seen companies that they do it wrong without even having the effective computer, you know, like into their systems, right? By playing with the data and by playing with understanding the profile of the user. So it can always go wrong from today till 10 years from now. It will not change. Where it will go wrong? It will go wrong when we see technology more than a tool and we we forget this agency that we, it's a reduction of our agency. We, we make the choice to lose our intelligence and our choice and blame it on the machines. This is where it will go wrong when we see that that's the case, you know. Oh, it's the machine's fault. No, it's the persons who is running the machines for whatever reasons. Because at the end of the day, you have binary systems. Zero, one. Whatever you do with them, it's really up to you. And whatever the recipient will do with them, is really up to them. So I can accept that, oh, you're playing with my emotions right now by playing with the light or the music. Or I can say, you know, where this is coming from, I need to understand. AI could be an enabler and an extension for our learning. 
if we see it like that, I think we have the values and the education to do it right. If we see it as a, you know, for the bad, then yes, definitely we will do something bad. Yeah. Yes. I feel it's such an interesting and, and polarizing discussion right now because I could imagine any advertiser sitting out there saying like, oh, this is fantastic. I can totally use this because I'm always in the market. Well, we say we're in the market of storytelling, but really we're in the market of telling you a story that, you know, we want you to hear. Exactly. Yes. The story has some parts yeah. that you forget yeah. on purpose. Exactly. Yes. On purpose. And then yes. you have on the other side, this massive opportunity for healing yeah. for an increased visibility of emotions, of feelings, and of all the underlying things that make us tick and that cause so many conflicts that we then back rationalize into a, but he said this and she said this and he didn't pay me and, you know, she ripped me off. So to actually utilize the, you know, field of effective computing, of decoding emotional intelligence to expose what actually really drives us as humans so we all get a better understanding, we come to grips with the idea of our emotions and we start healing, would be a beautiful thing. Yes, we can do great things in the medical field. I think with AI, much more than what we could do as human beings because you cannot just analyze every single fact, right? So how in, the interact, in your model, it's more like interactive design, between computers and between machines and humans? Okay, so the computer can choose, right? I think the human should choose. Of course, I think the human should choose, but because I'm a user experience Mm -hmm. designer, I always think about the applications. I I cannot stop at the technology. I have to think what are the, the ideas and what can be done with it. So in my model, which is, you know, a hypothesis and a provocation at the same time, I think about... First of all, who should choose? Mm-hmm. How do you choose? If we think about, you know, the big voice interaction speakers like the Amazon Echoes and so forth, they are all in what is in my framework, like stage one, right? They're all learning about sentiment analysis mm-hmm. in voice. And they're all trying to understand not only what you say to your point, which is what they've come out four years ago with, but they're trying to understand how you say it and what that means. So we're already there. We're already being, the data is already being collected and we have not been explicitly asked whether we are okay with that, right? So that's, to me, the first problem. We are also in this very weird and strange business of relationships because we are finding ourselves in a world where for the first time the computer refers to itself as I, I'm sorry, I didn't understand. The first and only time we saw that before was when Hall said, you know, I, I'm sorry, I cannot do that. Yes. <laughs> so it is all of a sudden science fiction and utopia as well as dystopia is right here. So now the interesting thing that we found in my research, I found, is that when machines talk, people assume relationship. And there's a whole world around research that started in the early 2000s that is based on the premise that computers are social actors. So it's called CASA. And it actually is this idea when you imply into a computer minimal human traits, people assume and accept that as, you know, a partner, a, a 
human-esque entity. And this is a human fallacy that, you know, we see a kitten and we're like, oh, and we see something that remotely behaves as a human and we imply all of our, you know, kind of human traits, including politeness and things like that onto that thing. So with this, there is going to come a moment where we have to define what kind of decisions we want to make along the way and how far we want to let that in. Alexa has not called Alexa just by chance, right? And I have a friend who changed the wake word to computer mm -hmm. because she has kids in the house and she wants to make it very clear okay. that point. you are not talking to a woman and you can't bark commands at a woman and she will do as you say. Yeah. So these are, you know, we're right now in this world where we make, designers do it all the time. Yeah. Designers make something appear like something you know so in order for you to start using it. When the iPad came out, it had a lot of like skeuomorphism in it. You open up the, the library and it looked like a bookshelf. There was no reason whatsoever for it to look like a bookshelf, except for you to understand this is where my books are. Yep. We've now since moved away from beveled design and we have flat design. I am guessing that if we are clever and smart with computer-human interaction, we move in a similar direction. So right now the computers are kind of like very anthropomorphic, very human-esque. And they have voices that have genders and they have personalities yeah. that are very clearly designed for you to continue to engage. As we continue to move in that field and in this direction, there's two ways that this can go. The first step can be that we move away from this direct human-esque affiliation with the, with the computers and we move into maybe a more stylized version. I'm, I'm thinking a lot about cartoons and I'm thinking a lot yeah. like to delineate them from real humans to make them more cartoon-esque and more, more in that direction. And then, of course, if we look at the movie Her, is there going to be a point where these machines actually are very specifically one-to-one -one designed and personalized to serve me and to be my very individualized assistant? Because there is a theory out there that, you know, these machines and these types of interaction models, as well as these types of intelligence models, can become a direct avatar for me. There's the beautiful way is to say it's my emotional support system, my guardian angel, right? The dystopian way is, is what we saw with, with Google Duo, where all of a sudden, you know, a machine calls people and deceives people and they have no choice in the matter of whether to talk to this machine because they just are not informed. So Yes, good point. But I mean, everybody's trying to humanize technology, right? At the same time. So everybody wants to put these cute little eyes on this robot because this is what the human brain will do. We'll try to find the social aspect of whatever we have interaction. We do that with our cars, right? It doesn't have That's any difference exactly with right. a robot. So, so what, do we stop the humanize? Uh, humanization of technology? Should we say, you know, till here, everybody needs to get that this is a computer? Well, I think it's such an interesting question because you are so absolutely right. We as designers have always designed for affection and cars is one of the best examples. I think the friendliest car is called the Bug-Eyed Sprite. It's a car that when you look at it, you just have to smile. It's so cute. <laughs> and the first computer that came out that had a monitor and a mouse and everything had a smiley face on it. And today it's still, you know, part of yeah. Apple's, Apple's identity. So I don't think that we can stop it, but we've been talking in the context of this house a lot about technology literacy. 
And we are finding ourselves in this very strange moment where technology is faster than we are feeling that we can catch up. Yes, sir. So we fall into one technology trap or what feels to us one technology trap after the other and we are confused and we are angry and we're looking for these watershed moments and we're looking for blame, right? Yeah. Facebook is to blame or Google is to blame or the big ones are the ones that need to be broken up. But the reality is that we are all part of these social experiments and no one could have guessed that the worst of humankind comes out on a platform like Facebook when you just let it. Yeah. And that's humans, right, who post, who deceive, and who, who push. So with that said, the, our technology literacy will rise, is my one theory. And if you look at, you know, next generations, the way that they use social media is already a lot more sophisticated than we and our parents' generation do it. And it will be very interesting to see how they're going to continue with what we now know as smart speakers, which become more humanoid machines. The other thing that we also have to think about, and that is all of us thinking about that individually, is the idea of the pendulum of innovation. The innovation swings to the furthest side of what can be done, right? Technology has done that every time there was a new technology innovation, a new industrial innovation. The pendulum has swung very far, and everyone was very much like, optimistic and enthusiastic about the future it can provide. Then we saw all the pitfalls and we swung it back, right? TV is a big deal like that. Every household had a TV. Now, by far not every household has a TV anymore and cord cutting is a very big deal. We talk about the zombies that sit on the subway and look in their phones and get their neck cranked up as long until we are the zombies ourselves because we got a text message or we got a news thing that we feel we need to read right now and we stop in the middle of a hallway. So instead of othering and, you know, continuing the discourse between us versus them, I do think that we have to start seeing our own choice and our own freedom in that choice and become more literate in order to understand what we're actually playing in. So the responsibility lies to us as well, as users, right? Because, excellent point, AI is good if you want to monitor kids and figure out how they can learn. It's good when you try to do uh, medical prevention. But when it's for us, oh my God, no. It's really conflicting, right? It is very conflicting. It's a very personal thing. It is a very... You can do it for the others. Yeah, and it is, I think, just so easy to others. Right. And to go out there and say it's these people and this world and, but we are part of it. And it's on the flip side, very, very hard to cope right now and to understand because the inputs are massive and the acceleration is intense. Everything happens extremely fast. You know, when I started working, which is not too long ago, it was the year the iPhone came out. That is literally about 11 years ago. And that's insane. And I talked with a friend and when she was a kid, she envisioned speaking with computers. She thought that was so cool and there were TV shows about that. This is now here. This is all happening in our lifetime. So it does require a lot of coping. But, you know, we do have the choice and we do have the ability to shape and it requires discipline. Discipline on us individually and discipline on the industry as well. That's true, but it's always the easy choice to just blame it on 
something that you cannot even, it's so abstract in a way, right? It's who wants to make the effort, unfortunately. Yeah, um, I think this is, you know, the responsibility probably lies in both sides, no? the responsibility, and I think that's a lot of the discussions right now are about regulating AI, regulating, you know, developing a, an ethical framework for AI. And we are in such an infancy, you know, you're much closer to it than I am, but I, I believe we're in such an infancy of artificial intelligence. It's not really intelligence yet. Yeah. It's an if-then mechanism just multiplied by a bazillion. And to your point, of course, AI is racist and sexist because the only thing it learns from is the past. And the society that we have created up until now, I think we all agree, is far from perfect. So when we then start interacting with it and start curating it, we get into the danger of losing AI's objectivity, right? We are starting to influence with our own belief system, with our own kind of, you know, aspirations for the world. And all of a sudden, we're very quickly in a very muddled field that is by no means yet perfect, by no means, you know, autonomous in terms of how it learns and so forth. But we do have to have these discussions now in order to define where we're going. Yeah. You know, I find similarity with the media, with TV. I always thought that TV was a reflection of the society. Now I see the uses of technology as a mirror of our own flaws. Okay. And then you see the bias in the computer and you are upset. Yes, but you have been dealing with that or you have been accepting that for the last 50 years already. And now you have a machine saying to you, you know, I cannot hire you because I have this, you know, this conclusion. And you are upset. But we did that the same as humans. So what you're saying is very interesting because what you're saying or what I'm hearing is that part of the crisis that we find ourselves in with technology is because of the mirror effect of but technology. To me totally. Yes. yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It shows who we are, the good and the bad. Technology can make it right or, or wrong. At the end of the day, we'll show, you know, we'll show that some of the things we did is wrong anyway, before technology. Right, but we didn't see it because it exactly. didn't, wasn't mirrored back yes. to us in such a stark and obvious way. Because we are the creators of everything, right? Yeah. <laughs> and now, yeah. who is this machine to tell me that, you know, I'm wrong here? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely interesting. So, great yeah. talking and meeting you. It's an Absolute pleasure talking to you. I am so excited about your business. Thank you very much. I am so happy that it's you who runs it. <laughs> Thank you. That is a great, great compliment. <laughs> With the thoughts you have and the care you put into it, it makes me very hopeful that we're, you know, we're going in the right oh direction. Oh my God, yes, absolutely great. Nice meeting you and great minds. Uh, definitely we'll have a coffee in New York. Lovely. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, emotions and machines, Christian, it strikes me that now you're in the mobility industry with Porsche. It's a very emotional industry, right? So what do you know? I mean, they were talking about the um, Maria and Sophie, about the relationships that we can have to machines. You are very aware of that, I suppose, because of cars and the relationship. We yeah, have I just wonder cars. if our industry is really emotional. I think the customer's extremely emotional about the product. And I guess I recently heard a story from someone who told me that people have an average in Germany, a longer relationship with their car than with their wives. I think this is rather weird. On the other hand, shows how strong an emotional bond to an object can be. 
But, but by the way, he said that drivers often have a relationship with their cars that is longer than the relationship to their wives. Does that apply only to men? Because he said wives. Or I, is it I suppose so, uh, because I think the industry is pretty male-driven. And I guess, yeah, it's interesting if there are differences. I guess just in the podcast, they also discussed like, uh, what is the resonance if the voice is female or male? And it comes back also how to mimic this kind of relationship to someone. It's a little bit like in the movie Her, where he falls in love with a voice assistant. So I remember an approach that I had. I was once in Tel Aviv and met a guy and he was working with the MIT Media Lab. He was doing experiments like, how do you perceive a robot? And he had different shapes and there was like an experiment The more human-like it got, or more childish it was okay, but the more it got really in optics like a human, it got super weird. So it's interesting. Canny Valley, yeah. Yeah, that was an interesting experiment, I thought. And I guess they also talked quite a lot of, about emotions right now, right? Talking about what makes us human. I think emotion is really one last resort we have as humans. And also, of course, as well as brands like Porsche, we touch people by the heart, makes them pretty emotional, attached to something. Yeah. And I mean, they also spoke about the mirror effect, right? So it just That was bit, interesting. When we were talking about yeah. genders or a sentence like longer relationship than the one with their wives, you know, it just reminded me like, of course, AI is basically just replaying what we feed into it. It's like past biases or existing biases that we feed it with. Emotional artificial intelligence is really intriguing, but it's also completely terrifying for me. So there are companies that basically have developed systems that can track your facial expressions, can read your emotions, and they can perhaps engineer them or manipulate you, right, into feeling certain emotions. And I think they're sort of saying, yeah, we can figure it out. Like we have cracked or we will crack the mystery of emotions, which strikes me as something that I just don't No, that's really a desirable future. I, I'm not sure if they really encrypted that because they also mentioned, for example, Ekman Friesen. Um, it's basically, they tried to code it via facial expression. So it's more like from the early 1900s, uh, this research. Um, and we still, I think this is one of the foreign lands that is still unexplored is emotions. That also comes to my mind. So I met once, for example, Andre Kovacs, blue hair, and I asked her, why do you have blue hair? And she mentioned, yeah, blue was the last color that mankind discovered. And she mentioned, for example, in the Iliad, Homer's Iliad, the sea is described as wine red and not blue somehow. And when you hear that, it sounds strange, but I think it's true. The last resort that needs to be explored is really emotions. And I'm not, to be honest, sure if this is really an aspiration to have an interaction with an object that somehow brings emotions with it. Because that's, again, I think we should keep somehow human relationships. And yeah, this mystery about relationships, love is something... We should keep somehow, is my feeling. I think there was also actually a talk at the House of Beautiful Business this week by Helen and Dave Edwards, and they were saying that uh, some of these emotional AI systems, they have actually been proven wrong. They were really wrong. They misread emotions or they really simplified them. And so part of these applications have been debunked and mm -hmm. basically they've sort of have been found out. They're really simplifying. They're reducing this richness of our emotional landscapes. So which brings me to my final question before yeah. we wrap up. How do you feel? Pretty good right now because we're in Lisbon and it's a fantastic city and we met so many inspiring people. 
this is a great time here in Lisbon. If you want to uh, meet more interesting people and listen to further conversations of this podcast series, Porsche at the House of Beautiful Business, you can go to any podcast platform that you know is near you. <laughs> yeah, and please comment and give us feedback on what you think about it, what you like, what you dislike, what you love. Christian, that was beautiful. Thank you very much. 